Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine this. You're stranded on an island forever. But don't freak out because you get to bring one dish with you. Your desert island dish. What is it? Every week your hosts, Paul and Tegan, that's us. Hello. Hello. We'll ask this question. They'll chat with and torment a literal raft of guests on the island who'll dish up stories, gossip and culinary secrets. But they all have one big thing in common. They bloody love food. Welcome to Dish Island. Hey friends and welcome to another episode of Dish Island. I'm Tegan Higginbotham. I'm sitting across from Paul Verhoeven who has miraculously recovered from his very bad illness which I ironically thought might have been food poisoning but it wasn't. It wasn't but it was pretty bad. <laughs> I've not been that sick in a long long time. It wasn't even COVID. No. Nope. Long story short, I almost died. Short story, I didn't almost die, but I was very, very sick, and I'm glad it's over because let me tell you something, there is nothing, nothing better when you can't keep food down than that day, you know, when you wake up on that, like, fourth or fifth day, and suddenly you realise that, oh, food's back, baby. Food's back on the menu. Everything tasted fantastic. Well, what better place could you possibly want to be, Paul, than here on Dish Island? A hospital. I wanted to be a hospital. <laughs> it was so rough. But you know what? Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for reaching out on Instagram and wishing me well. You're better, so let's cut to the chase. We've got an amazing guest on this week mm. and our very first return guest. But before we introduce him to Dish Island, we do need to let our wonderful listeners know how the dinner party went. In three words, Paul. How did you find our dinner party? Because I've been told by people we were going on about it a lot. I think we kind of nailed it, honestly. That's not three words. Give me three words. Go. We, na- we nailed it. Yay! I really, I, seriously, I think we nailed it. Everyone who came was very impressed. Everyone who wasn't there was very jealous when they saw the photos. And we're having leftovers for days. In fact, the next week we had your parents over and we replicated the entire thing, which was really stupid because it was about 48 hours of prep. But this is a dish I think we have on lock now. Yeah, we'll share it online. We will share it online. Mm-hmm. But let's get to it. Last season, all of our guests mysteriously disappeared. This guest has returned. God knows why, although I hope he explains why. He is an absolutely renowned Australian TV presenter. You may know him from Better Homes and Gardens. He's a chef. He's an author, photographer, radio host. Please welcome back to the island, Ed Halmagyi. Ed, welcome back to Dish Island. Now, you're our first returning guest, which is confusing because all of our guests from last season disappeared between seasons, and we just assumed that they died. So how did you get back here, and what's happened to everyone? Well, look, I can't speak for anybody else. All I can tell you is that I'm a stronger swimmer than most. And so <laughs> I, I was rescued on a, on a small small craft. I mean, it, they said it was a fishing vessel, but whatever fish you can land on that, I, I'm not sure. Maybe minnows. Uh, but I, I found myself marooned once more. But this time it was an island, uh, which is a little unusual. A little like Mount Athos in Greece. It was populated only by hermetic uh, Orthodox monks, um, which is frustrating for someone who likes to 
to chat, they don't talk. And for someone who likes to eat, they're a little bit, let's just say, they're in the gray zone as to whether they like food or not. And so eventually I decided to make my run for it, jumped off a low cliff, began swimming and beginning to drown. I discovered that I reckon I must have been somewhere near Sri Lanka because a passing memory of elephants, and yes, that is the correct collective noun for elephants, uh, helped me out. And here is the pachyderm easy rider, I've returned to Dish Island, and thanks to you, Trunkies, you did good. <laughs> what is that? Too much? Is that no, too much? Sometimes I say, sometimes I say, hey, can you kind of um, prepare yourself for a bit of a goofy question? And what you've just done is just what's that martial art where they you use the opponent's strength against them? Is it Aikido? Is it Judo? Judo? Uh, origami, folded like a like a cheap paper crane. Yeah, but I tell you what, you you made a very very beautiful thing, which will now sit on my mantelpiece. And occasionally I'll, I'll look at you and I think either Paul. You're strikingly beautiful, but utterly useless. Or alternately, I'll fly you around the lounge room and pretend to be joining you. That's be one or the other. Just be careful, I'm not load-bearing. <laughs> Ed, last time we had you on was for the 12 Days of Dishmas, and you leapt to the defense of festive Jewish food and claimed it was better than Christmas food. And we didn't disagree with you, but just recently mm. was, I believe, Passover. It is, yeah, yeah, it was. Where does Passover sit delicacy-wise, and what did you cook up for yours? Uh, well, look, uh, I think it's in the Talmud. Uh, it might be in Shakrit, where it says quite clearly that Passover food is house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because you got to understand, this is like, this is a time of self-deprivation. Oh. Although, yeah, because look, interestingly enough, it wasn't always. This is a, a fairly modern interpretation. A quick theological diversion uh if you go back to exodus um it actually describes and also in leviticus it describes two distinct holidays uh one is the festival of passover when you remember that uh the firstborn uh survived and then the second one is the festival of the unleavened bread um they've kind of been conflated in modern era uh you were originally just not supposed to eat you know risen bread now it's kind of a bunch of rabbis finding ever more odd and elliptical ways of depriving you of fun and uh i gotta tell you that's not my favorite part of my religion but it is there <laughs> so there's two kinds of religious food related things one is deprivation one is excess absolutely to talk to any catholic about that exactly right yep oh yeah because I, I mean i was raised catholic and guilt and deprivation were very big things but also you know I mean, the food we got, you know, the tiny sort of um, ice cream cone wafers, bad, crappy sacramental wine. After you're mm. bragging, I assume that even Passover would have some kind... I mean, what, what are you eating during Passover? What are you allowed to eat? The reality is you're, de you're describing these tiny little sacrament wafers about the size yep. of a 50 cent piece. Mm. And I'm calling bullshit because our matzah is like 30 centimeters square. So you would need to have a gallon of sacramental wine to go with that. And I, t and I always say, Baruch atad nailohen melech alam buri buri hagafen. Now I can drink. There you go. Gesundheit. <laughs> but listen, what is, okay, so talk us through matzah because um, my mother-in-law is mm. Jewish and yep. she's been looking for good matzah and I said, there's no such thing. But is there- You're right, there isn't. There's no bougie matzah? There's no- No, the whole point is you're supposed to hate it. That's like the, <laughs> it's the whole idea. If you're enjoying matzah, you've got it wrong. And what's really funny is you go all over this, all over Instagram, people go, oh, I've made myself this amazing, like matzah pizza. I've made like matzah Nutella sandwich. And it's like, okay, a matzah Nutella sandwich, 
what you want to do there, it's like a, it's like an Oreo. Like you pull it apart yeah, and yeah. you lick all the Nutella out of the, the middle and then you put the matzo in the bin. It's really easy. And then make yourself another one. <laughs> oh my God. Because <laughs> I used to have uh, some, some Jewish friends at university and mm. they would just have boxes of matzo bread. And for, for, the, for the lay folk out there who don't know what matzo is, could you talk us through what it actually is made of and what it tastes like? Yeah, well, matzah can be a lot of different things. Um, and it, you've got to understand that uh, there's not one Jewish population. I mean, here in Australia and in certainly in North America, um, the vast majority of the Jewish population are what we call Ashkenazi. They came out of Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, Germany. Although, to be honest, there's not many Polish Jews anymore. And that's a very Eurocentric kind of stodgy food. And so their matzah was traditionally made with wheat. Right, but then there's also a lot of North African Jews, and there are a lot, also a lot of what they call Sephardic Jews, who were the ones kicked out of Spain in the late 15th century, and they spread their way from I don't know, Morocco to uh, Cochin in India, and so all of these incredible variations of locally indigenous Jewish foods emerged. Um, and I've got to tell you, some of the best Jewish food in the world comes from Yemen. Um, they make a dish called maluach which is, um, well, it's, it's funny because like traditionally you should be able to eat it at, uh, at Passover because mm. it's just like flour and water and a little bit of fat and you roll it out, fold it, roll it out, fold it, roll it out, fold it. You know, it's a little bit you know, like the layup on layup on layout. It's like the Sara Lee of flatbreads um, <laughs> and you grill that. It's amazing. But of course, the rabbis came in, the Ashkenazi rabbis came and said, uh, that's not what we eat. Sorry, you can't have that anymore. So... There's, there's all sorts of ones made with barley, made with rye, made with wheat. Um, the stuff you get in the supermarket, um, well, it's a real tribute to recycling because if you ever wonder what Vizzy produces uh, out of their recycling facility near Tumbarumba on the Southern Highlands, yeah, it's freaking inedible. Yeah, and it's not load-bearing either. You get these sort of big squares of just, it's just the most joyless, it's joyless. Yeah. It's, that's a re Paul, that is a beautiful way to put it. It is utterly joyless. And the reason that's a perfect way to put it, not only because it, it accurately describes a product, but you've accurately contained what the whole festival is supposed to be about. <laughs> like, if you start smiling at Passover, you're going to get slapped. It's like... <laughs> it sounds like the thing that binds together the different wings of the Jewish faith are not some sort of religious edicts, but a shared hatred for matzah bread. Is that right? It's certainly defining, absolutely. And if for anyone at home who's thinking, oh, why are these guys going on about a bread? Have you ever gone out at night and you're having a really good time, a couple of glasses of wine, and then someone starts pouring tequila? And in the morning, you wake up with that feeling in your mouth like you've just tried to swallow a, a whole cat. Uh, that is the experience that a single bite of matzah will give you. So there you go. Yeah, it's a desiccant. You could lay it, this it at the is. bottom of <laughs> Absolutely. Put it in a plastic bag with electronic parts and nothing is going to go off between China and here. Oh, yeah. If your phone gets dropped in water, just whack it in a bag of matzah. you fine. And, mate, the Israeli economy just took a, took a really sharp lift. Oh, my God. Now, for listeners to Dish Island who are thinking this is getting a little bit esoteric, this morning you sent us a laundry list of really fascinating, heady topics you wanted to discuss. And it's a big list, but I thought I would start at the final point first. Okay. Why pastry chefs are sexier than you. Now, when we first met, I was studying graphic design at Tate. You were, you were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, over in Seaforth. And yep. I was studying with your now wife, Leah, mm -hmm. and you rocked up with all these fresh pastries in these trays that you'd made because you started as a 
pastry chef. Is that correct? I did indeed. And, you know, look, it, it's a bit like this. So when I was a teenager and I'm working in a restaurant, um, when I was 14, I was an absolute shit of a child. Uh, we should come back to why that was, because it's actually kind of an interesting story. It relates back to one of the other points. Sure. But, um, uh, so when I turned 14, my dad said, uh, he gave me a, a bike from on my birthday and he said, here, have mm. a bike. I said, that's great, man. Thank you. He said, okay, now go for a ride. Okay, great. And don't come home till you've got a job. Um, and so on my 14th birthday, I got a job as uh, like a, a cook's assistant, uh, in a, in a low rent restaurant, but within a year I'd started cooking and I very quickly found myself drawn to the to the pastry kitchen, uh, partly because no one else wanted to do it, and so you always had a good job, but also because it was there I discovered the most important thing about cookery, which is you're not in the food business. You're in the hospitality business, and any chef who thinks, oh, yeah, and I'm in the food business, I cook for a living, no, no, you don't, because if you cook for a living, that implies that you eat it but you don't someone else eats it your job is to take care of other people right and that is the essential fascination i found in the heart of the pastry kitchen N nobody needs chocolate ganache tart like it is it is not fundamental to anybody's survival and yet we do it yes, yes it's an art yes it's a craft but fundamentally it gets you girlfriends and so what i found was as a young bloke uh, I go with uh, Andy and Mike, uh, my two friends, and we go to a party. And Andy would go, "Oh yeah, I am. Um, hi, You're talking to some girls now. Hi, um, I'm, I'm Andy, and I, I play rugby." And Mike would be like, "Yeah, uh, get out, mate. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Mike, I've got a job at the news agency, and uh, how?" And I'd walk up and say, "Get out, girls. Um, my name's Andy. Uh, I work with chocolate for a living. How you doing?" Uh, and let me tell you, it's a lot more convincing. <laughs> Listen, what I'm curious about is that idea yeah. that, yes, you are essentially in the business of taking care of people, right? You are yeah. giving people something they need and you are serving others. Whereas you are right, pastry chef, whilst a ornate kind of wing of the food mansion seems like you're right. It doesn't fulfill a need if it fulfills a want. It's about desire. Yep. Yep. I mean, I'm all about desire. Well, not, you, not, not usually the subject of it, but I'm all about desire. Oh, shush, you're gorgeous. But do you do you try and tie that, you know, need and desire? Do you try and tie those together in your regular non-pastry cooking as well? Yeah, once you once you develop a fascination for what that does in the world, it very quickly becomes defining. Um, I was lucky enough 21 years ago to start working in media. I had no intention of doing it. I was running a pretty good restaurant in Sydney and. Uh, it was one of those circumstance things where one thing led to another, led to another, and suddenly I found myself looking at the camera going, what, what's this about? Um, but I simply took the same approach I had always taken in restaurants, which is, how can I help you? How can I make you have a better day? Mm. And I took that same idea to whether it's writing, whether it's radio, um, whether it's uh, television, public event hosting, it doesn't matter. If you go into it with a fundamental desire to make someone else's day better, I've got to tell you, life goes good really, really quickly. Um, right. People respond to that. They like being taken care of. And if you're someone who likes to take care of others, it's a perfect fit. So what about the inverse? Because I've noticed that the, and this stereotype seems largely to have gone by the wayside, thankfully, but when I used to think about the chef, I thought about basically an angry, volatile, young, typically man, you know, like mm -hmm. an auteur storming around a kitchen, screaming at people. And it seemed to me like the mental health of the people working in the kitchen wasn't really a factor. You ran a restaurant. Is that a thing that you noticed much? 
Uh, not where I work. Uh, I only had three rules um, yeah. as far as any restaurant either owned or ran. And those rules are very, very simple. Um, number one, don't be late. I don't tolerate lateness because it's fundamentally disrespectful to the people you work with. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I was only in running restaurants, everybody had mobile phones already. If you're going to be late, text or ring. That's fine. I mean, if your bus is delayed, that's not a problem. If you've, you know, you've got to get your sister to school, totally okay. But don't leave people hanging. It's not cool. Um, and if, if nine o'clock is your starting time, it doesn't mean you walk in the door at nine. It means at nine o'clock, you're at your bench with a chopping board set up and you're in your kit. That's it. And, it, you know, the ones who can't get their head around that, you don't really want to have long term anyway. It's not about the time. It's about the respect for the crew. Right? Yeah. The second thing is I don't tolerate blunt knives. And the main reason for that is partly it's about a professional, um, a sense of your professional identity. Uh, you either want to be good at it or you don't. Um, but also, if you're going to spend all this money on this incredible food that farmers um, and producers have spent so much time crafting, and you go and hack at that with a blunt knife, it's so disrespectful to, to the animal that gave up its life and to those farmers who toiled in the field. And do you know who's worst at that? It's the bloody pastry chefs, because they all go, ah, oh, it's not a bit of meat, doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. What is more delicate than a raspberry? If you don't have a sharp knife or raspberry, you might as well cut it up with a meat mallet. What are you doing? Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. So I can tell you as a, as a point of fact that uh, there are at least 35 chef knives uh, in Sydney Harbour near the overseas passenger terminal. Um, because basically what I do is I go in and see someone. I say, I'll have a look at their knife. I say, look, this is blunt. Would you mind getting it sharpened by tomorrow? And they say, yeah, no worries. Tomorrow. And if you come in and they haven't sharpened it by the next day, I would grab them and their knife, and we'd walk out to the edge of the harbour and say, what I want you to do is throw your knife in the harbour. And they look at me like, uh, what, what? I said, throw your knife in the harbour. What, what, what? And then they eventually they, they would do it. And they'd come back in the kitchen like, what, what am I supposed to? So what I would do is I always had a box of really good quality German knives in my locker and an engraver, and I would go and put their name on it and I'd hand it to them and say, here's a brand new knife. If this one's ever blunt, pack your kit, you're going home. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because I, you can only give people so much leeway before they're just taking the mickey when it comes to everybody else. So the third thing, and this is the most important, never lose your temper. Not ever. So uh, you're always... <laughs> Running a restaurant is actually more about a problem-solving exercise than anything else, all right? A waiter is going to take a dish to the wrong table, all right? A customer is going to get up quickly from their chair and knock over something that's just been served to them, right? Uh, someone is going to burn something on the grill. Mistakes happen. But the measure of a good chef is the ability at that moment to be able to wrangle all those elements simultaneously, get everybody back in place where they need to be and solve the problem. And the person who starts yelling or screaming or pointing fingers, that's just, a, it's an impediment, right? Yeah, a, a new waiter just stuffed up, they took the food to the wrong table. Do you honestly think 
that yelling at that waiter across the pass is going to make them a better server at the next table that night? No. They're going to be hysterical and probably make another mistake. All you need to say to them is, listen, is it, yeah, it's a problem. We'll have a chat about it after, uh, after service. Now, what do I need to do to make you okay to go out to the table again? Because I need you to go out and apologize and let them know that we're onto it and we'll be there as quick as possible. Get them a drink, whatever you need. But I need you to be charming. What do I need to do? Right? And that's all it takes because our job is not to cook the food. Our job is to make sure the guest has the best possible time. And me losing my temper or the sous chef losing his temper or, you know, the pastry chef losing his temper or any of my fantastic young female chefs losing their temper doesn't help. You know what's interesting? Listening to you talk about this, you sound like the coach of a sports team. You sound like... That's the, the other thing I did, I did as a, as a, with my son. That's exactly what I did. And exactly the same rules applied. I'm really glad you noticed that. You know, I trained for 10 years. I trained my, uh, my son's soccer team. And it was mm. the same rules. Nobody's allowed to lose their temper. You lose your temper on the field or at training, go and sit down. You're out. I'll, I'll take you back on as soon as you calm down. But you're going to sit out until you do calm down, right? And the moment someone messes up on the field, yeah, sub them off. Of course you do, if it, you think it's warranted. But you don't come, oh, my God, I can't believe you missed that. You say, hey, are you okay? You look really upset about what just happened. Um, I actually think you're doing pretty good. And then talk about something else they've done really well. So, man, that tackle you did in that back corner – that was fantastic. Yeah, I know you just sprayed that shot on goal. What's the matter? You got another chance. You ready to go out and do it again? It's that ability to corral excellence out of people with divergent experiences and divergent skill levels that is the true mark of someone who can run a restaurant, a kitchen, or fundamentally any business. And this is one of the things you know, on that list I sent to you. This is, I cannot believe more people don't, as a matter of course along the way, uh, study business before they own a restaurant. It's not about learning to cook. I feel like the stereotype of the screaming genius chef is that they don't change their process to, to adapt and to suit the people around them, right? Whereas you're saying that to be a good coach or a good leader or a good, you know, run, run a good restaurant, you need to take into account, you need to tailor the experience for the individual members of your team. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the silly ones in your group will conclude that you're giving preferential treatment to some and worse treatment to others. Uh, and yeah, you will be in individual moments, in individual ways, but it's not continuous. But if you've got someone in your team who you really want to employ, and they're a, they're a good young third year apprentice, and they're really good at a couple of things, but they are absolutely struggling to work on the grill. Were you running the restaurant, Paul? What would you do with them? Where would you put them in the kitchen? Get them off the grill, that's for sure. So with all respect, no, you've got that absolutely back to front. What you want to do is you want to find some slightly quieter lunchtime services where you can put, you've got a young chef to party or a senior chef to party who wants a bit more responsibility. Put them on the pass. I don't need to work the pass. I've worked the pass for you. I don't need it. And I'll go on the grill and I'll have this young third year next to me. And oh. I'll spend a week's worth of, of lunches showing him how it's done. How do you expect these kids to learn how to do it if you just throw them into it? You have to teach them. You have to, yeah. you have to believe that they can get there. If you don't believe they're going to get there, why have you got them? So I'm curious as to how, now that I know that you, know, you have the perspective of someone who would make a good leader, how are you serving under other people? For example, you mentioned coaching your son have i'm you... sorry what is this thing you're talking about i'm what so serving under what <laughs> <laughs> well no because i i i heard a little bit told me that you that you play afl and that you... i do very badly but i do yeah but how do you respond to coaches orders in that in that circumstance uh okay i'll, I'll be I'll, I'll level with you because it's not yeah. something i talk about much with people um yeah. 
I love and loathe playing AFL. Okay. Um, I love it because I, I love the still being able to be in a sport of, you know, of any sort. I love the camaraderie with, uh, with some of the guys I play with. I don't really have a great connection with all of them, but I think that's the nature of being an adult male in a in that sort of environment. Yeah. But I cannot stress enough the the nerves I feel driving down to play because I know I'm like pretty much the most crappy AFL player in history. I'm only there because I'm really tall and I can play ruck. That's it. And I always feel like I'm slightly letting them down. Oh. And well, this is the interesting thing. I've got uh, the two really lovely guys I play with. One of them, Jack, who's just an absolutely beautiful man. He's the one, no matter what happens, he comes over and says, hey, you have fun tonight, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, love to see you, but whatever. He's just an absolute, he's a beautiful human being. And one of the other ones, Andy, who he doesn't have quite that personality, but he keeps telling me where I need to be on the field. <laughs> and so he's the one putting me on the grill and giving me a bit of bit of help, you know. Right. You know, at first when you hear that, you know, you think, oh God, I'm being humiliated in front of everyone else. Like you have that nerves kick in. But then you realize that actually it's being done with a lot of compassion and a genuine interest both for my well being and the well being of the team. You know, they can happen simultaneously. Are there any points in your life in which food has played a truly pivotal role and i'm not talking about in terms of your career although it could be i mean you know those moments where food has been the focal point of what is effectively an adventure story oh mate i've got a great one for you yeah yeah okay yeah great so there's heaps i mean you gotta understand i travel and cook for a living so mm. um heap i want to tell you one we went to new zealand about eight years ago yeah. and we're near rotorua and near rotorua there's a, a place called lake tarawera um, it's a beautiful, lovely lake, clear water, very cold. Um, and it sits right on the edge of a volcano. Um, and so we went out fishing on the lake. And I am an absolutely terrible fisherman. In 20 years of, of working uh, on the show, and um, must have done 300 fishing stories, I've never caught a fish on camera, not once. <laughs> I even went out with like Australia's champion fishermen and they uh, when i come along i'm like the jonah nobody catches anything and then the one time i did catch something which was a, a whole bunch of squid at bustleton in wa and i turned around to my favorite producer and said dan suck on this mate squid and he goes uh squid's not a fish mate uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah lovely man um but anyway so we're on like so i didn't catch the fish but one of the guys did and it's a beautiful five kilo uh trout it's amazing and we cleaned it up whatever and stuffed it with i don't know whatever doesn't really matter wrapped it up and then we took we we paddled over to the side of the mountain the volcano yeah dug a hole in the sand put my wrapped fish in the hole and covered it back up with sand, then went swimming and whatever and reading a book for two and a half hours and then dug up a cooked fish because I cooked a fish with a volcano. And to anyone who hasn't done that, which is everybody else, sucker! Oh my God. How did it taste? Like fish, man. Oh no, you can't know. It's got to have some what, extra... What, what do you want? It? You want to have some like sulfurous after effect that tastes like rotten egg gas? No, no. The whole point is that you get it. It tastes... The same, but it's cooked with a volcano. But the funniest bit is, so I'm swimming around, you know, because I get in these shots of, oh, this is time passing. And right there, there's all these hot vents that come out. Now, mm. you might not know this, but volcanoes are pretty warm. Uh, and so you'd be swimming along, and all of a sudden, uh, 
this scalding 700 degree water would shoot right up your patootie. It's like, yeah. So the, the, the sequence that made the show was, oh, yes, lovely. Finding the fish, wrapping the fish, burying the fish, and swimming. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> okay, so you've cooked the fish in, in a, a volcano. volcano. Yes. That's, pr- that's pretty amazing. Can you top that? Uh, yes. Well, another one I did was uh, Mark Webber. Uh, came out to Australia for something, and it was him and one of the other one of the supercar guys, and they were going to do a charity race around Eastern Creek. And yeah. I think at the time the record was know, two minutes forty three or something. And so the idea was, uh, is it possible to make lunch for two people? being drivers in less time than it takes to race around Eastern Creek. So of oh course it's got to be filmed in real time with two cameras. Um, <laughs> And so I, I just want to say, just for anyone who's feeling like they might be disappointed and for anyone who thinks that supercars are really fast, uh, those guys came in second and third respectively. Um, <laughs> and, they, and as they went back through pit lane, I handed them each this lovely minute steak uh, sandwich. It was hilarious. I mean, that was really, really good fun. But if, I, I don't know if you've ever been to the races there, but um, those the backfire of those cars... Um, it really does. It's a little bit like being caught in Aleppo during the middle of the Syrian conflict. I just, <laughs> I, I'm, I have a poor heart or something because I literally do not have the courage to face that ever again. That was horrible. Right. Oh, that just seems needlessly stressful. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, one other one. We we cooked yeah. underwater. You shouldn't be able to cook underwater, but I worked out a way to do it. We are. I'm a scuba diver. Or I used to be, and we. I made this this special tank. I was out of perspex. I had it made. I had a little hole in the top. It was like a release valve, like you get on the top of a, of a brewing kettle. Yeah. And I had this little table in there. And I was making this, uh, cooking this piece of fish that we just caught. But it was on a little, one of those little camping gas burners, like a tiny little ones when you're hiking. Yeah. And the heat would go up. And so every now and then you see this bloop, bloop coming out of the top of this thing. But I cooked dinner. I cooked fish underwater. That was extremely cool. That was a lot of fun. But, oh, uh, my God. God. When I, when I go to do this stuff, a lot of people say to me, oh, how do you work out what it is you want to do you know, in media? I mean, for like recipes and whatever. I always start out with a story. Forget the food, forget the ingredients. We'll, we'll get, that's easy to solve. What's going to make it fun for the viewers? And this goes back to that whole hospitality thing. What's a story I can tell them that they're going to want to watch? What? Yeah, once you do that, it's easy. You know, show them something stupid, show them something ridiculous. Ridiculous right. is always good. So you could get cocktail ingredients into a mixer and then just go to a fault line and wait and just stand still and let the <laughs> You and me, baby, we are going to do that. That is brilliant. Oh, God, let's do some life or death food ideating. Actually, sorry, really quickly, you know what we could do? We yeah. could go to the Qantas jet simulator and I'll get it all ready and have my, sh- my finger and then you crash the plane. And when you crash the plane, it shakes the cocktail and we raise our glasses and drink to death. It's beautiful. Yeah, something yeah. tells me Qantas aren't going to no. allow that one to happen. But, you know, we'll do, we'll do it after hours. It's fine. I, yeah, look, yeah. I think you might be the perfect person to ask this because many, many, many years ago, I was watching one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons and it's where Marge goes on this kind of Thelma and Louise style crusade. Yep, I remember that one. Yep. Yeah, and there's a point where Homer and Chief Wiggum are cooking eggs on the engine block of the car and Chief Wiggum says if we can keep this down we'll be sitting pretty and they don't ever get to eat the eggs but I'm curious as to whether could you theoretically cook eggs on the engine block of a car and would it be safe okay I'm going to send you a book uh, it, it's called 
to- uh, what's it called? Fast Eats Under the Bonnet. Um, yeah, no, no, seriously. In the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, into, and which is about when that episode came out, there was a thing worldwide of uh, what if you took your lamb leg and you studded it with garlic, bit of rosemary, whatever, and you wrapped it up nice and tightly and you put it under the bonnet and how far would you have to drive at what speed in order to get it medium? It was hilarious. This is a really funny idea. I just can't imagine how many people ended up with engine problems after lamb juice coagulated in or around their uh, distributor. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, the whole idea is brilliant. But yeah, the idea that the way I would suggest doing it, though, is actually to you put like a cast iron grill plate under there. Mm. And then you drive all the way to, I don't know, like, I don't know, Seal Rocks, which is uh, three hours north of me. Um, you know, from you, you can go to Warrnambool. Uh, and then when you get there, oh, gosh, I'm really hungry. You bring out the eggs and the pastrami and straight onto this perfectly hot griddle. And like, that would be fun as you drive into the, uh, into the campsite. I reckon you might make some friends. So it's a modification you would make as opposed to using the existing structure of the car. Yeah, I, I look... Um, I'm all for exploring new oil types. I mean, you know, pistachio oil, um, hemp seed oil. It's great. I reckon sump might be where I draw the line. Yeah, I don't know, but I think it might be. Yeah, if the bacon fat from your buddy keeps the car going on the trip back, then maybe it makes sense. But Yeah, indeed, indeed. Now I'm really confused because I was about to ask you what your desert island dish is, and I'm worried now because if you're cooking in volcanoes and underwater and, you know, whilst crashing fake planes into each other, I mean... Is is your desert island dish relaxing to make? Well, I I think my uh, my desert island dish would probably be have a lot to do with disappointment actually because I like cooking for other people and if you're a desert island you are shit out of luck. Uh, so I think for me it would you know of course like Bear Grylls I have dived headfirst into the water and manhandled a parrotfish out. I'd probably go and find a pandanus palm because they'll be growing on my island for sure. Um, and once you've once you've gutted the fish and you don't throw the guts out, you've um, managed to make some coconut water vinegar, of course, by fermenting the coconut. You put the, the guts into there and give it a good shake and drain it off. So you've got like a fish sauce. Um, you wrap it in strips of pandanus palm and you're roasting it over your coals, drizzling with your, um, it's like a coconut garum, I guess, uh, from time to time. So you get something intensely fishy and you get a couple of uh, plates you've lightly uh, you know, woven together from the from a coconut palm, and you got some coconut cups there, you know, to serve. And then all of a sudden, you you look around to serve to your friends and realize that you've got no friends at all. And that's when I reckon you're eating your parrotfish, which is delicious, one tearful, miserable bite at a time. So, is the salt from the tears helping season this fish? Oh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> What are you calling this dish? What are you calling this, uh, this ode to oh, sadness? Oh, ode to, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, 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 I like that. It's the reverse of ode to joy. I like that very much. I like that, Paul. I, in my head, I immediately see that Pink Floyd prism because uh, I want, I want like, yeah, one, one emotion coming in and instead of being all these colours of joy, it's all they're all just grey. So um, <laughs> t- turn a lighter shade of grey... Not a lighter shade of pale. I don't know, something along those lines. All right, yeah. we, 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 we can watch up the name later. But I'm... You're the smart guy in this relationship. Come on, Paul, I need your help here. I don't know if I am anymore. You've done, you've done so many things. You've seen so many things. I am the prism through which you filter your light, Ed. Oh, uh, you are my prism. 
You're, you're oh. more than my sunshine. You refract the true nature of me. See, on my desert island, I refract myself and there's nothing but gray and sadness. But from you, from you, Paul, it refracts through and it's all clear. So it's substanceless. But, you know, you're lovely and charming nonetheless. <laughs> If there was ever a stranger and maybe stupider point to finish an interview, I haven't ever heard one. So, Ed, thank you so much for rejoining us quite foolishly on Dish Island, and hopefully we'll we'll talk to you again soon. I'd love to. And listen, for everyone listening, uh, I hope you know just what a joy it is to talk to Paul. I've, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people around the world, but Paul, you really are a spectacular interviewer, so thanks for a whole lot of fun. Oh, shush. Uh, you shouldn't tell your guests to shush, should you? No. <laughs> Not no, when they're complimenting you, no. No, no, I f- <laughs> All right. Can I just say, that was a wonderful, wonderful interview. Oh, my God, I love Ed, and I just found that whole thing so great. And in case anybody's wondering, no, I wasn't just really quiet for the whole thing. I... <laughs> I had to go to work. I'm so sorry, everybody. But gosh, maybe I should bugger off more often if that's the sort of conversation you're going to have. Only problem is he barracks for the swans. Oh, oh yuck. So gross. Well, into the pit with you, Ed. We're blue supporters on this island, goddammit. <laughs> well, look, uh, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Dish Island. Next week's guest is another luminary of the Australian TV food landscape. We can't say who he is, and every time I try and be coy about a guest's name, I end up just making some rhyming slang that makes it very obvious. So this time, I promise, I'm keeping it a secret. In the meantime, make sure you hit us up on socials. Have a great week, everybody, and we will see you soon for more Dish Island. Eat your veggies! It's Mary Gian. Shmary Dean. Plary Fian. Stop it! I can't do another one. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Dish Island. Dish Island is a proud member of the ACAST Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.